Excellent. Yeah, keep that Bible passage open. We're going to look at John 4. I'm going to look at, because we are three weeks into our series currently on encounters with Jesus. Has it gone wrong? There you go. We're three weeks into this series on encounters with Jesus, looking at different people who met Jesus uh, in the book about Jesus's life written by this guy called John. In the first week, we saw how Jesus came to call people to follow him, as he says that to a guy called Philip and then his friend Nathaniel. And then last week, we saw that Jesus wasn't here merely just to attract followers, which he was doing, but that he came to give new life through a new birth to anyone who would come and follow him. But if you were one of the original readers of John's Gospel, the question that you would ask is this, who is this eternal life for? So Jesus come, he clearly wants followers to follow him who he can give eternal life to. Who is this eternal life for? Who can get in on this offer? And in John 3 and John 4, John presents us with two different people that Jesus offers eternal life to, and they could not be any more different. With my former primary school teacher hat on, I've tried to present the differences as clearly as possible in a table, because I like tables, I find them really helpful. So, uh, to start with, in John 3, uh, he talks to the man who's given a name, he's called Nicodemus. But in John 4, this Samaritan woman doesn't even get a name, she's just a Samaritan woman. Nicodemus is celebrated for being a religious man, a moral man, a holy man, a good man. The Samaritan woman, all we know about her, the only highlight of her story is her past broken relationships, and there's a few of them. Nicodemus, Nicodemus is an important and influential man. He's a, he's a spiritual leader in Israel. The Samaritan woman, well, she's a nobody. She's a nobody. In fact, she's so rejected by the people in her town that she has to come and get her water in the middle of the day when no other fool is going to go out in that kind of heat. Can you see how different these people are? They're on the opposite ends of the spectrum in Jesus' day. John is highlighting this difference, I think, really clearly between who he meets in John 3 and in John 4. And I think he wants to show us that Jesus has come to save anybody from either end of that spectrum and all the way in between. They couldn't be more different, but Jesus came to reach them both. You see, John 3 taught us that there is nobody who's beyond the need of grace. There's no one so holy in this world, no one so righteous or well-behaved or so good, not even a righteous teacher of the law. There is no one who is beyond the need of grace. But John 4 brilliantly shows us that there's nobody beyond the reach of grace as well. So John 3 teaches us that there's no one beyond the need of grace, but John 4 teaches us that there's no one beyond the reach of grace. And John begins this story really clearly by setting the scene. The Pharisees are clearly kicking off in somewhere about some baptism thing. So Jesus left Judea and he went to Galilee. Nothing unusual about that. Jesus travels around this region a lot during his life. What is unusual is verse 4. He had to go through Samaria. Now, if you're anything like me, that doesn't sound anything extraordinary. I just follow Google Maps. I go wherever it takes me. I don't care where I'm passing through. I just care about where I'm getting to. But to John's original readers... This sentence would have leapt out of the page and smacked them in the face. Yes, the most direct route from where Jesus was to where Jesus wanted to go was through Samaria. It's the most direct route. But most Jews would rather die than go that way. They would rather die than go that route because the Jews hated the Samaritans. 
Jewish people really, really hated the Samaritans. And they hated them because when that northern bit of Israel was invaded and taken into exile, the people who were left in Samaria intermarried with the foreign settlers in that land and bred with them. And as a result, they were seen by the Jewish people as traitors, as dirty. They were half-breeds. And the pure Jews wanted nothing to do with them. Now, if, like me, you need a bit of a reference to hang that on, if a Harry Potter reference helped here, the Samaritans were a bit like mudbloods and the Jews were like the purebloods, if that helps any of us. It helps me anyway. But anyway, Jews, rather than travelling through Samaria, would rather take a completely different, much longer route through the Jordan River and around the outside than ever go through Samaria. And yet Jesus had to go through Samaria. Not just because it's quicker, but because Jesus is on a mission. Even though it isn't the done thing, and no one would have said anything if he'd gone this longer route, Jesus is on a mission. And that mission involves going to the places that nobody else wants to go. And look what the result of that is in verses 39 to 42. Loads of people in that town come to know Jesus as saviour. So I've got to stop and ask this morning if there's anybody here who's feeling the Lord calling them go to somewhere that no one else would want to go, or that you know people might look down on you for going to, and who might be reluctant to do it, or who's refusing to do it. Perhaps that's going abroad to serve the Lord, or to another part of the UK. Maybe that's moving to Ayers-Montsel to come and join the team there. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you with what God loves to do in places no one else wants to go when they see Jesus for themselves. Look at the blessing Jesus and his disciples would have missed out on if they'd gone a different route. No one would have looked down on them for going a different route, and yet look what would not have happened. It's worth going places where nowhere else wants to, because loads of folks are saved here. Jesus went where no one else wanted to go, and God's mercy seen in an incredible way, isn't it? Are we willing to do that for him? Anyway, that's a little aside. Back to the main story. Jesus comes to this town called Sychar, and he sits down at Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's one of the great forefathers of the Jewish faith, and the Jews and the Samaritans shared that part of their history. And at this well, Jesus, tired from traveling, he sits down to rest while his disciples go off and get some food. And this woman comes up to get water from the well. And a conversation takes place where the woman and Jesus you see they're talking at completely different levels about different things, but using the same words. John loves to do that in his gospel, have confusion where people think they understand what they're talking about, but Jesus is talking at a deeper level because he's got bigger things he wants to do, like with the being born again last week and Nicodemus not understanding it. And in John 4, we see three things that people get wrong as they talk to Jesus. Three things that Jesus is talking about that his listeners just don't understand. And the first thing we see is the wrong water. The wrong water. So this woman, she rocks up to get her water from the well. Remember, she hasn't got a clue who Jesus is. He's just some Jewish guy sat near the well that she needs to use. And he asks her in verse 7, will you give me a drink? Which sounds like a harmless enough question. But the woman is clearly a bit shocked by this. She replies, verse 9, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? let alone the man and woman divide that there would have been in those days. The Jew and Samaritan divide, as I've already thought about, was massive. Stuff like this just doesn't happen. But Jesus ignores that. 
He's got bigger fish to fry here. And he replies in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this woman's understandably confused here, I think. This bloke she's talking to is clearly a few sandwiches short of a picnic. He hasn't even got a bucket. He hasn't got a spade to dig his own well. He can't give anybody any water. What on earth is he on about? Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? I think she's quite gentle with Jesus here. She thinks he's a Jewish madman and she seems to sort of gently try and reason with him. Jesus, mate, you seem to be claiming you're greater than Jacob who gave us this well. You're not greater than Jacob, mate. Chill out. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He wants to show, A, that he is greater than Jacob, but B, just how insufficient Jacob's well and the water it provides is. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, yes, I actually am greater than Jacob. The water that Jacob gave you, it will not satisfy you forever. You're going to have to come back here again tomorrow for more water. But the water that I give you is going to give thirst-quenching eternal life. And so this woman, I think still not quite getting it, verse 15 says, Sir, give me this water and I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Either she thinks Jesus is talking about literal water or she's still just humoring him as a madman. Either way, she doesn't quite get it fully. She doesn't properly understand. And Jesus really wants her to. And so he takes the conversation in a very serious direction. Verse 16, go, call your husband and come back. Jesus hasn't really been talking about water and wells, about H2O and holes in the ground. He's been talking about the deeper thirst that this woman has, the deeper internal thirst inside of her. He isn't bothered about her hydration mainly. She doesn't need physical water. She stood next to a well and she's got a bucket full of it. She wants to address, sorry, Jesus wants to address what she's been looking for to quench her deeper thirst. And he shines a spotlight on it with that one statement. Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Five previous marriages, five broken relationships, and a sixth one happening at the moment. Now that could mean Either this woman is an immoral woman, fairly loose, jumping from man to man until she gets bored and moves on to the next one. Personally, I'm not so sure that in a society like that one, she would have had the power to do this. I think it's more likely that this woman has been used and abused by a string of men who've all used her and dumped her. All she wants is to be loved and protected, but the men in her life just want her for one thing and one thing only and then get rid of her. And so she's a broken, embarrassed woman thirsting for the love and marriage and protection that she dreams about. 
And I think that's even seen in how this chapter is written by John. He's deliberately written it in a certain way. There is so much imagery in this chapter that echoes what happens in Genesis chapter 29. There's so much imagery in this chapter that echoes Genesis 29. And that is a story about a marriage proposal. So Jacob himself, who this well is all about, I think that's why John mentions him so much, Jacob goes to a well in the middle of the day. He speaks to a woman who gets him some water and Jacob ends up marrying her. Like the way John writes this chapter, you can almost hear the romantic music in the background. It's got a classic marriage proposal all over it. So as readers, we're meant to think, is this a marriage thing? Is Jesus looking for a bride like Jacob was in Genesis 29? Well, we'll see a bit later about that. But what we do know is that this woman is and has for a very long time been thirsty. Thirsty for the love, comfort, protection, and acceptance. And she's looked in all sorts of men who've just let her down. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows both her present and her past and all the ways and places that she's looked for and is looking in to quench her thirst. He knows the water that she's turned to quench her thirst is these relationships. But Jesus says to her, like with the water from this well, she's only going to thirst again if she keeps doing that. Do what you always did and you'll get what you always got, Jesus is saying. But he wants to change it and he wants to change her. But what would Jesus say to you and me here? To the woman, he says, go call your husband and come back. That's what you've been looking for to quench your thirst. Go call that and come back to me. What would he say to us? What would he say to you and me this morning? Where do we go to quench our thirst? Go and get your house valuation. Go and get your bank account or your savings account. Go get your job status. Go get your marriage, your children, and how happy and successful they seem to be. Go get your laptop and your internet history. Go get your fitness, your health, your qualifications and your degrees. Go get your list of WhatsApp contacts or Instagram likes. Go get your social life, your sex life, your fridge or your beer cupboard. Go get the respect and admiration of your peers or your church family. Where are we looking for to quench our thirst? Wherever it might be, unless it's in Jesus, we're still thirsty and we will thirst again. We're going to the wrong water, Jesus says. And make no mistake, Jesus knows our past. And he knows our present. He knows how we've spent the last month, the last week, last night. He's seen our diary and our direct messages. He's seen our bank accounts and our browsing history. And he knows all about us. And he tells us we're trying to quench our thirst with the wrong stuff. He knows all about us. And yet, he still says to every one of us, come and drink the water that I give you. His offer of forgiveness is to anyone and everyone. He really means what he says in verse 14. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. That is a whoever that is echoed from John chapter 3. Whoever. It is impossible to read John 4 and think, I'm too bad for Jesus. You are not. Jesus knows all of our past and all of our failures and he still offers every single one of us eternal life in him. This whoever can include you, no matter your past or your present. Come to Jesus. 
drink. Stop trying to quench your thirst and your guilt everywhere and anywhere else. Only Jesus will satisfy. So why not come and do that today? And if you're a Christian aware that you are trying to satisfy your thirst in places you know you shouldn't, and you keep going back to, repent of that today. Turn from your sins. Ask for Jesus' help. Say sorry and accept the thirst-quenching forgiveness that he gives anyone who comes to him. So as Jesus talks with this woman, she begins to understand a little bit more about who he is. Probably not with clarity, though. So in verse 9, she called him a Jew. In verse 19, she now says, I see you're a prophet. And so she asks a valid question that shows that she's still thinking, but doesn't quite understand what Jesus is on about. And here we come to the second thing she gets wrong in her encounter with Jesus. And we see that she gets the wrong worship. The wrong worship. See, Jesus has implied that he is greater than this well, and greater than Jacob, who gave them the well in the first place. So this woman looks up and sees the mountain that they're sat on. This is the mountain that Samaritans would come to to worship God. That was a place they came. It was like their temple, the place they came to worship God. And she asks him if he's even greater than this mountain then too. If he replaces the water and the forefather, and he's greater than both of them, does that mean that he needs to replace this mountain in some way where her and her people worship God? What she wants to know is where people should go in order to worship God. Where, where does she need to go in order to have her thirst quenched? Where does she find this worship? And so she asks Jesus. It's kind of a correctly a, a valid question for her. Where do I need to go to worship God? But Jesus isn't bothered about where people worship God. Jesus is bothered about how people worship God. He's not bothered about where people worship God. Jesus is bothered about uh, how they do it. Look at his answer in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. They hear Jesus talking to her there, talking about true worshippers, worshipping in spirit and truth. But that means there is a wrong way and a false way to worship God. And the truth is, this woman has been doing it. She's not been worshipping in spirit and in truth. In fact, this woman's false way of worship, the wrong way to worship, it's got two parts to it. It limits your worship of God to a specific place, like the mountain that she's talking about, but also to do it hypocritically, like claiming to believe one thing and singing her heart out one second, but living out a completely different thing, the double lifing thing that I'm sure many of us have heard about. See, false worship of God is mainly in one place and is without really repenting of your sins in your life. This woman is bothered about doing her religious duties at the formal specific place that she knows about, this mountain. But all the while, she's living the rest of her life in immorality, living with a man who's not her husband. And that is the wrong way to worship God, Jesus says. Limiting our worship of him to a specific time and place and living happily sinful lives the rest of the time without a second thought like Jesus ever existed. We can all do this, can't we? We can treat this building as the place where we come and do religion. We sing the songs, we pray, we listen, we perhaps serve. 
But then as soon as we leave the door, all thoughts of living for God run out of our mind on the wind. We act as if God really is only important to us in here, and then we live the rest of our week however we want. But Jesus says that God is spirit, and he's with you as much in your bedroom or your car or your work office or your school or the pub as he is with you in this room. The true way to worship is in spirit and truth. It's not wrapped up in a place. It's wrapped up in a person. Jesus, only Jesus. He is the water you need to drink, and he is the way to worship God in spirit and truth. Only Jesus. Verse 22 is even more true than just salvation is from the Jews. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, is from this Jew and this Jew alone. Jesus Christ. And he says this to the woman here in verse 26. He says, this Messiah that you've all been waiting for since the beginning of creation, the rescuer that God promised who would undo the ruin that sin has caused in the world, and the one who will make relationship with God possible again. I am he, Jesus says. And I love the excitement of the woman. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? The only reason she'd gone out to the well in the first place was to get water. And what does she do? She leaves it all behind. She drops it, dumps it, and runs off to tell everybody about this amazing Jesus she's just met. He is the one place, the one focus of all true worship. And she wants to tell everyone about him. Do you remember those days of excitement? (laughs) Do you remember that passion and zeal when you were first saved? This is amazing. Why does everyone believe this? I long for that excitement to return too often. We could learn a lot from this woman, I think. But as she goes off into the town, we see that the disciples have reappeared and they join this woman in the things they get wrong. And we see thirdly that they get the wrong food. The wrong food. And yes, I am very annoyed I couldn't get an alliteration here. So if you can think of a word I could have used instead of food that begins with W, please tell me afterwards. Um, As it is, we'll have to live with our pain um, here. So the disciples come back and they see Jesus who was tired when they left him. So tired he couldn't even go with them to get the food. He has to sit down. And understandably, they tell him to eat something. Verse 31, stop working, boss. You're clearly exhausted. You need to eat. And he replies in verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So his disciples don't get it. Could someone have brought him food? So Jesus explains to them in verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What is it that keeps Jesus going? What energizes and feeds and fuels Jesus? It's obeying the Father. And that is more vital to him than any physical food and any physical comfort he could have. And while his disciples are off at the sicker branch of Sainsbury's, he's been given eternal life to this woman. And that is what he eats. That is what sustains him. That is what drives him and keeps him alive. How important to us is obedience to God? Is this our food? Particularly when it comes to taking the gospel to unbelievers who are thirsty. What value do we put on evangelism? Not just inviting folks to events, but on sharing the gospel with people we know personally. It's Jesus' food to do that. It's what motivates him, and he loves to carry on doing that through us today. And we have the massive privilege of seeing who Jesus is going to show himself to through our words and our conversations. 
When was the last time your stomach rumbled to have the chance to share the gospel with somebody? How hungry are you to share the gospel? How is our desire to be like Jesus in this way? How is that shown through how you pray, how we pray together? If it's Jesus' food, is it ours? How vital is it to us to share this message of salvation with people who don't know it yet? But Jesus doesn't want to just say, you should be doing this more. He wants to show us the amazing opportunities that we have. Look at verse 35. He says, open your eyes. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Look at the harvest that's on our doorstep. Look at all the thirsty people we know who are quenching their thirst with the wrong water and worshipping the wrong things in all the wrong way. And we can offer them through Jesus water that leads to eternal life. We desperately need to pray for an increased appetite for the food Jesus talks about here. Wherever we are, whoever we come into contact with, at home or at work or at school, whatever. Is the reason Clarendon Park is not breaking down the doors of Avenue Church to come and hear more about Jesus because we're too easily satisfied with the wrong food? That we're not hungry enough to share Jesus with people we come into contact with? This woman is. Have a look at what she does. She runs off to tell people and the whole town comes out to see Jesus. People want to know the good news we have to offer. They just don't know it yet. And the truth is I don't believe it enough. I want to eat the same food Jesus eats, don't you? But if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'll need you to spot in this passage Jesus' whole purpose in coming. His food on this earth, see what it was. It was to bring someone just like you eternal life. Eternal living water that leads to eternal life. That is Jesus' reason for coming to earth, and that was his reason for going to Sychar. Jesus did come to look for a bride, like we thought about earlier. Jesus did come to look for a bride, but it's not an earthly wife that he wants. He wants a heavenly bride made up of people throughout all of the world for eternity with him as his perfect spotless bride gathered together, his church. But brilliantly, this chapter is a preview of what's going to happen in a passage Graham talked to us about a little bit earlier, John 19. There are loads of similarities between this passage and Genesis 29, but there are also loads of similarities between this passage and John 19. In chapter 19... It's about the sixth hour, same time of day. Jesus is on another mountain. There's another crowd surrounding Jesus, but this time he's not sat, sat down next to a well. This time he's nailed to a cross, gasping for breath. And what does he say in verse 28? I am thirsty. Jesus, who came to give us thirst quenching eternal life, and to do that, he enters into a drought that leads to his death. He dies the death we should have died. He thirsts to death so that he can give you and me this eternal life. Isn't that incredible? And as we listen in, we hear his final words. It is finished. Remember what Jesus said in John 4, 34? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. As Jesus breathes his final breath, he's finishing his work. It's like putting his knife and fork together on his plate. 
He's done everything needed for you and me to be completely safe from the punishment and the consequences that we deserve for turning again and again to the water of this world. Whatever that might be, instead of turning to God. We have all rejected God, haven't we? None of us want him ruling over us. Our hearts show that. And that leads us into a drought that will only lead to our eternal death. But as Jesus says, I am thirsty, and as he cries out, it is finished, he wins for you and me living water that will become in us a spring of eternal water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the saviour of the whole world if the world will come to him. That's what the town recognise in verse 42 in our chapter, isn't it? They say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. The saviour for whoever's, like you and like me. Even though he knows us perfectly, both our present and our past, he came to save us and he gives us eternal life through his living water. Can you say today that he really is your saviour? Can you say that you believe that you need to reject the water this world offers and remind yourself that it cannot satisfy? Nothing you spend your energy and time in apart from Jesus will ever satisfy you the way that he can. It cannot quench your eternal thirst. Only Jesus can. 